Hello and welcome to Making the Rounds, a podcast by the American Medical Association. Today's episode is part of our Health IT series from the AMA MSS Committee on Health Information Technology. My name is Shivani Putnagar and I'm a medical student at the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine and I'll be your host for today. We are delighted to introduce Dr. Shu Han He. He is an emergency medicine physician at Mass General Hospital. Dr. He is also an instructor at the Lab of Computer Science at Mass General and a very prolific researcher who focuses on use of technology at scale. Hello and welcome, Dr. He. Uh, thank you for having me. This is exciting to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for taking time to join us. Um, to get started, can you explain to our listeners a little bit how you're involved in the health IT space or any projects you're currently working on? Sure. Um, so basically what I do um, to uh, keep it simple essentially is to make things easy, open and accessible. So oftentimes when we think about uh, health IT in medicine, we think about electronic medical records, right? So patient data um, directly accessing the things that uh, we are uh, using to take care of patients. Uh, what I work on is uh, I think everything that not, is not related to that. Uh, so things that uh, such as remote work, or uh, websites for hospitals and the services they offer. And what I think about a lot oftentimes is, what is the architecture of those open accessible um, uh, technologies that makes it easy for people to find the information they need, right? So whether that's on Twitter or things like social media or Reddit, or even when you search for something like, um, I need a procedure, how do you find uh, the local hospital and the local institution that can provide you the service you need? Um, and so uh, making it easy uh, to reach people uh, oftentimes, uh, and like think about this, almost like electronic circuits, right? A circuit is a uh, basically shuttles around electrons. And what I think about of websites is how does the architecture of a website move human attention and desire and to get them the things they need? So accessibility, openness, and sharing of information. Awesome. Yeah, that's really important when we're talking to patients and making sure that they understand what's going on with their health and things. Um, so you talked a little bit about the impact of your work. Um, can you talk about any challenges you may have faced along the way? Yeah, absolutely. So um, oftentimes um, in medicine, uh, number one priority is safety security, right? So we want to make sure that uh, patient uh, information is secure. We want to make sure that um, if we're talking about a medical device, that if you make it more open, that it doesn't become more hackable, right? Um, so uh, absolutely the number one top of what we're trying to do is um, make sure that um, if we make things open, that it's also secure. And oftentimes how we do that is to make sure that Frankly, no information ever enters the ecosystem if it's in an open ecosystem. So we entirely divide it from very closed systems like uh, health uh, electronic medical records entirely, right? Uh, that creates limitations of what we're doing, which is actually okay, uh, because oftentimes what we're doing are things like shuttling around PPE uh, during the PPE crisis or making sure that uh, physicians who are working in opioid disorder are getting um, their DEX waiver. Right, a physician is oftentimes the best target uh, when we're starting work in any of these spaces because um, they oftentimes are looking for information. So whether that's education, medical education, or um, learning, or uh, you know changing practice patterns, those are oftentimes a very very easy uh, way that we can start um, in any sort of open accessible technology. Right, uh, but then moving towards patient uh, accessible information becomes much more difficult and challenging, and frankly, uh, much more conservative around that kind of work. Yeah, this definitely seems to be a shared challenge that we've talked about with other um, interviews as well. Um, you kind of touched on this with uh, your answer, but for our next question, we were going to ask about how COVID has impacted your work. You mentioned the PPE crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so it's been um, 
I think it's essentially turned all society into um, the shared collective medical education on uh, testing and um, surveillance rates and uh, just frankly aware of the impact of human health on society, right? It integrates into everything we do. We are biological species and um, our health is so important to functioning. And we see that if society is not healthy, uh, the society doesn't really function, right? So um, in, a, in a lot of ways, uh, my role um, has uh, actually expanded because of that, because so much of more society has wanted and taken interest in, um, you know, uh, their health, right? And, and I give a, an example here, um, data and accessibility models. It used to be that the most frequent data that people looked at was the weather report. Every day you look at your weather and you say, okay, it's snowing outside. Um, I should wear, you know, uh, something, a nice warm jacket and uh, snow boots, right? And so there's a very clear action and that's very clear open data that people are interfacing with every single day. But now that data is covid so what is the incidence rate in my community? Do I, um, should I meet, make sure that I'm wearing a mask indoors if there's no mandate? Where do I get uh, my local vaccine? Um, how do I uh, make sure that if I'm a provider, um, accessing um, you know, infusion centers, things like that, right? So um, often this has become a much more prevalent um, and, and actually I think expectation among both healthcare providers and patients that that technology and that open accessible uh, data and that uh, easy to use interface um, that is the expectation of people and is no longer um, um, okay to say that it's going to be very, very hard to access or you need to be in person to access a sort of healthcare uh, related resource. It's the expectation that you, um, you, you get that uh, very at the, at, the, um, at the tip of your fingertips, basically. Yeah. And that's really empowering to patients too, if they can access it on their own without having to rely on us. Absolutely. Um, and Regarding the pandemic, back in 2020, you co-authored a number of articles about changes that were happening within the residency application process and the match, um, which were unfortunate side effects of the pandemic itself. Um, could you give us a summary of what you found or any recommendations that you gathered from that? Yeah, um, basically, number one, remote work and remote uh, communication is a really uh, amazing thing. Um, you know, it turns out that even before COVID um, in organizations, um, you know, tech, tech companies, there was a whole host of technology companies that were no longer even uh, they never they had people in the organization never met before. And these were publicly traded companies that were entirely made of engineers uh, that were entirely remote. Right. And so um, this became, I think, uh, much more rel uh, relevant in the uh, residency application process where you no longer needed to fly around, spend, you know, tens of thousands, twenties of thousands of dollars on every single site that you went to that you could um, get to know a residency uh, actually sometimes better. Uh, because you get more access, right? Um, in theory, if you go to a location and a site, you do, uh, you're able to see the facilities, right? But if you're limited by time and geography and cost, what is the trade-off there? And we would, we would see a lot of oftentimes that uh, by fully embracing this remote technology and remote work, I think, culture, right? We would have more um, uh, creativity in the ways that we would allow people to get to know residency programs. So whether that's, you know, in our local residency, we would have um, much more social media and the residents would do takeovers all the time and uh, let the, uh, people see what is life like as a resident, right? Uh, those kind of really, really creative solutions would actually let people know what it's like to be a resident much more than going to a dinner and asking them, what is it like to be a resident, right? When you can see it firsthand in the social media. Um, so by embracing those technologies and by really uh, thinking creatively, 
we can really um, really create a better and more accessible um, uh, interview processes and actually interview selections around residents. Awesome. Yeah, I know as a fourth year who just wrapped up residency interviews and is waiting for the match results, um, definitely eager to see how this will impact, you know, things for my underclassmen and moving forward. Um, do you have any estimate for what kind of changes might stay for upcoming applicants or maybe in a future when the pandemic might be over? <laughs> Yeah, so um, I would say that um, that is up to decision makers and, and the uh, ACGME and, um, you know, uh, f- what I call purely educational folks, right? I, I think myself as a consultant uh, to say that, um, yes, you shouldn't be scared of these uh, really amazing technologies um, and that there are really, really creative things we can do with them. Um, but whether people embrace them long term, I think, is ultimately up to the decision makers and residency, right? I personally, uh, my, my view is you absolutely should. Because it makes things so much more easy and accessible, uh, and that having, you know, is again that example of an Instagram uh, takeover by a resident. Please keep that because not only am our uh, prospective students able to see uh, better and truthfully uh, able to see what uh, being residents like, right? And this, uh, I am able to see how the residents are doing uh, in my residency program to really make sure that uh, their health and well-being is taken care of. I get to know them better uh, through a very asynchronous way, even if I'm not there physically working with them on a day-to-day basis, right? So I, I really appreciate that, that um, those additional channels to get to know people. And I certainly think those are, and I hope those are here to stay. Absolutely. I really love seeing how creative people got with like YouTube and doing virtual tours as well. Um, and the Instagram takeovers are really fun to watch too. Exactly. And fun, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, kind of pivoting to another one of your more recent papers focused on the right to repair in healthcare settings. Um, for any listeners who may not be familiar with that phrase or what the problem is, could you kind of explain that for them? Yeah. So um, during uh, the COVID pandemic, um, you know, um, we became in medicine very aware of this issue called right to repair in the sense of um, most people, uh, consumers were very aware of it because of things like their phones, where in order to repair their phone, they would have to go to the person who sold, sold to them, whether that's uh, Samsung or Apple. And they were the only authorized people who were, were able to make changes. Right. So this presents a problem in medicine when it, uh, it's no longer a phone, but it's a ventilator. Right. And you only have so many ventilators and you need to make sure that they're all working. And one ventilator that is not working, if there's a six month wait to have it repaired, can cause a lot of issues, especially when there's supply chain shortages. So um, this became an issue um, nationally, actually, because um, even if a hospital individually would have the uh, enough ventilators, it became an issue nationally where we wanted to make sure that um, you know, this was not a threat where uh, the inability to repair something because of a third party vendor or uh, a primary vendor was the limiting factor to make sure that, you know, a patient didn't have their ventilator that they needed. Right. Um, and so this is um, something that is frequently brought up as is this something that should be more um, uh, that we should allow. And actually, it's a very complicated topic. It's not uh, as easy as it may seem because um, one, there's a lot of factors, right? It's not just the open accessibility. It's going back to that previous point of security and safety. If you make it easier to um, to repair something, does it also make it easier to hack? Uh, and you can imagine the danger of hacking a ventilator, right? And how uh, how potentially uh, catastrophic that can be. So we want to make sure that we're very very careful in this idea of um, this openness and accessibility to hardware devices, right? So what we did was we really just um, wrote a letter saying, you know, this should be considered, this is a problem, right? Around the hardware space, the the uh, need to repair 
But what we were very, very clear about is that this should be something that is very carefully debated, that is very clearly thought out, right? Uh, because it is such a special protected space and that uh, safety and security need to be top of mind. In addition to other considerations like environmental sustainability, right? Um, how does it make it more uh, the hospital more environmentally sustainable if we're able to repair more devices rather than throwing them away, right? So uh, this is something that I think is a future uh, topic of discussion that requires a significant amount of research, right? Especially to make sure that for every change that we make that's open and, and makes things more accessible to repair, that we also make it an opportunity to make things more safe and secure. Yeah, that definitely sounds very complex and multifaceted. Um, are there any other barriers that have made this very difficult to address so far? Um, well, I think it's just it's um, it's a very multi-faceted um, um, uh, problem, right? It's not just a medical problem. It is a engineering problem. It is a political problem. It is a, a environmental problem. It is a fiscal problem, right? So all of these things have to be taken into account. When you think about, um, when I give the example of an ultrasound device, right? A very, very small ultrasound device that is incredibly compact, um, there becomes real trade-offs when you are thinking about making a device smaller, right? Um, and, and you want it to be smaller because you want these devices to be easier and more portable. But that means that you are making basically circuits um, that are pushing the limits of physics, right? Um, to basically make sure that electrons can hop from one part to another in a very efficient way. And if you're uh, creating legislation that says they must be interchangeable in its parts, um, there becomes an upper limit to how small you can make these devices. And we really want those to make them uh, more mini, more portable, and have the innovation that we've seen in things like phones, right? So there is a very, very complicated dynamic in, in this space, and we just want to make sure that uh, things are very carefully considered. Sure. Yeah. I'm eager to see if they make any progress with this moving forward. Yeah. Um, and now backtracking to a time before COVID, a couple of years ago, you founded a company called Maze Engineers, um, and you're also a founder of Conduct Science. Can you tell us a little bit more about those projects? Yeah, um, this is kind of one of my uh, first loves uh, and actually something I did in med school. So I would always encourage med students to, to really uh, seek their passions, right? Because you can make so much of an impact in science and medicine. And this really kind of gets to the greater theme that, um, you know, in medicine, we are becoming much more multidisciplined and especially around technology. Right. And um, the ability and the desire for doctors to build not only take care of patients, but also build things that uh, fix things on a more systematic basis. Right. So in this particular instance, um, I was really passionate about mouse mazes. Um, I was working in a neuroscience lab. And it turns out that one of the biggest and most persistent problems in neuroscience is that um, you can figure out exactly how the brain works. But the brain doesn't have a, um, a marker for its um, for its health other than behavior. Right, your uh, ability to um, you know perform better, to love more, to learn better, to take care of your family, to build the relationships, um, to um, basically do the things that you should do in life. Right, that is what we define as behavior. And it turns out that in mice, um, we did not have a very good way to measure how does a mouse behave when you feed it a new candidate drug. Right, um, so I started building these because I felt like that was the best and easiest way to fix this really massive problem in neuroscience. And I was doing it as a med student, I was doing it as a resident, and that actually kept my, um, I think a lot of my engineering chops, right? For background here, um, I learned uh, computer science basically informally when I was a child. Uh, my dad was a computer scientist uh, growing up and I basically grew up in the computer science lab at the University of Illinois Champaign, um, you know, working in the C-terminal, building websites, uh, and actually, and, you know, through the years, I think it's almost been 20, 25 years now, 
um, languages change, right? The tools you have to build things change, but architectures and general principles stick around. And so, uh, and really the only way to keep up is to continue to build, right? So having a real project that is working with real neuroscientists and working with, um, you know, real problems on the ground was really the best way to continue to stay really relevant, right? Because it meant that I was, um, you know, I would not stay out of date and there were real problems I had to solve in very short time limited uh, fashion, right? Especially as a busy med student and as a resident. Um, but basically to this day, we're one of the largest uh, mouse maze companies. Uh, where we uh, distribute mouse mazes throughout the country, uh, uh, hundreds of institutions, thousands of labs across the world, um, making better uh, behavioral science apparatuses. Um, and actually, uh, we've really grown and expanded to even doing things like virtual reality for humans. Um, it turns out that um, in mice, we know exactly how the mice brain works, uh, but we don't do the same rigor in humans. And we can put those same humans into those very mazes uh, that we put uh, rodents in. And a lot of the same mechanisms exist. And it turns out that, um, you know, for a lot of the drugs that we have uh, in medicine, right, we first figure out that they work and then we figure out the mechanism, right? So the perfect example is benzodiazepines. We knew that they worked because mice uh, would spend more time in a open area of a maze where there was um, less dark space, right? Because that means that you have more exploration. Mice tend to want to stay in closed, dark locations, right? But when you fed them this drug, the color of benzodiazepine, they would spend more time in this open area. No one really knew how it worked, but it did. And that's what translated into this amazing drug that we use all the time called benzodiazepines, right? And it's very useful for so many different things. Um, we figured out the mechanism later. And it turns out that we can kind of do the same thing for a lot of other different uh, neurological drugs is find the things that help us um, in outcomes, right? In patient reported outcomes first. And then once we know that there is a difference, we can figure out how it works. And um, oftentimes that can be a very efficient way to do drug discovery. And that's something that I've been always really passionate about. And it actually goes to kind of the next, um, a lot of my other work in emojis. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm glad that you brought up the fact that uh, these mazes can be used for human trials as well, because when I clicked on the species tab on your website, I was surprised to see that humans were listed too. Yeah. Um, can you also explain a little bit more about um, how these VR mazes compare to like the analog versions that have been used in the past? Yeah, oftentimes they're exactly the same uh, because we should want because we know the exact parts of the brain that are being tested with specific uh, tasks and skills. So I'll give you an example. Uh, there's something that's very famous called the Morris water maze. Uh, this is a maze where you put a mouse into a tank of water, oftentimes milk, uh, because you can't see underneath. And you'll want to find this hidden platform, right? And so it's a very circular arena. And you're looking outside of this arena and you're looking for small cues. And so you're actually um, activating basically the parts of your brain that work on spatial navigation, uh, specific like um, there's, there's very specific types of um, allocentric um, navigation that are very, very important for this kind of um, behavior. So it turns out that we weren't doing the same kind of rigor in humans that we were on mice, which is very odd because um, ultimately what we're trying to do is treat people. Right, um, and to make sure that if someone has a has a, uh, Alzheimer's uh, or dementia or a stroke uh, that's very subtle uh, or even a large stroke, that they're able to regain their function and navigate, uh, you know, their home or go to the grocery store or um, you know um, recognize that the people that they are uh, in their families. Right. So we knew that there's there's ton, literature, literature, literature on mice and rats uh, around navigation. 
but we weren't doing the same tests on people. So the solution was, why don't we do the exact same test on people, right? And that actually has a lot of validity into make sure that we are testing uh, basically what I call the um, the bench to bedside uh, uh, road, right? So we want to make sure that uh, drugs that are working in mice are also working in humans. And why don't we put them in the exact same thing? But you can, I guess you can make the maze 10 times the size of a mouse, or you can put them in a virtual reality environment and you collect very fine navigation data and how efficiently they're navigating in a virtual reality space. And there's a lot of basic translational uh, clinical utility to that in drug development. Awesome. That's really neat. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. You kind of touched on this with uh, your last answer, but we wanted to talk to you about your passion for emojis as well. Um, so you are a author or co-author of the anatomical heart and lung emojis that we see in our keyboards. Is that correct? Yeah. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. So I encourage everyone to use them. <laughs> Yeah. What is the importance of having accurate emojis and what drew you to that side of the field? Yep. So two things. Um, first is linking to back to the last question of we are trying to, to answer this question of do you make people feel better, right? Well, it turns out we do this thing with emojis every single day in the hospital all the time called the Wong Breaker Scale, right? So those things that are asking patients, how is your pain today? Scale zero to 10. Or Looking at that smiley face meter on uh, a uh, pediatric clinic, um, how was your pain for a child, right? Because um, there's something called the patient reported outcome that was uh, basically uh, really introduced into uh, medicine after the Affordable Care Act, right? In, um, in 2009, in the Affordable Care Act, we wanted to shift payment models in medicine from fee-for-service, aka doing more, so replacing your knee, uh, with uh, payment models, compensation models to physicians, by, by making people feel better, right? But that meant that you had this really large outstanding question. What does it mean to make someone feel better, right? How do you measure that objectively? So uh, basically there was a, a, an institute called the Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute that was spun out uh, from the Affordable Care Act to basically create and measure these tools that would ask people, how do you feel, right? Um, so, uh, Papers and papers and, uh, you know, hundreds of different types of smiley face meters have been created in order to ask patients, how do you feel? Are you less depressed today? Is your depression getting better or worse? Is your stomach pain that's chronic getting better or worse? Because the alternative is you're coming to the doctor's office once every six months, right? That doesn't actually tell you much information because in, when, in, when it comes to these very fine-grained measurements of behavior, right, linking back to the mouse mazes, you're really thinking about a day-to-day -day kind of existence. What is your uh, happiness in the morning? What is your happiness after lunch? What is your happiness when you pick up your daughter from school? Um, you know, this kind of internal mass data is really, really critical. And it turns out that a lot of the scales we had to ask patients how you feel are not digital. They're based on paper scales, right? Well, it turns out that there happens to be this smiley face meter on everyone's phones, all computers worldwide, and even electronic medical records today, 
based on this common code code called Unicode, right? And they, they are the basis for emoji. And to give you a sense of this, this code underlies not just emoji, but the Chinese language, the Arabic language, visual languages that are also characters just like emoji, right? So the if you actually look at the Chinese character for heart, Xin, it, it looks actually just like a heart. It's amazing. And this has been uh, with us in human history for as long as we can remember. Emoji are basically a way to visually communicate with other people. And that's why it's so important to think about uh, how can we use this tool to uh, answer this very important question of how do you feel today, right? Um, can you build this emoji scale into an application that asks you every single day, multiple times a day um, after your knee procedure, how are you walking? Do you feel better, right? And so uh, we're doing a lot of research around using these visual analog scales that are accessible to everyone worldwide, billions of people. Um, uh, what is the, uh, how do you feel, right? So that's kind of part one is, patient uh, visual analog scales, AKA emoji as a standard patient report outcome. Now there's a second part of this that's frankly just, I just think it should exist. The fact that there is not right now a liver, a stomach, an intestine, a kidney emoji is something that really strikes me as fundamentally unfair. Okay. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, in the emoji, it, it, it basically a, a, a consortium is called the Unicode Consortium that decides every year uh, what emoji should exist. <clears throat> In 2018, the brain anatomical brain emoji was introduced. I had actually nothing to do with this, uh, but this created this whole category that said that um, medical emoji should be a thing, right? There are entire categories right now to food. There are, um, you know, emoji for beer, for clinking beer glass, for champagne, for sake, for matcha, but there is no, uh, no liver emoji that actually digests the alcohol that comes in with all of that category of alcohol. Right. And that to me is really fundamentally unfair is that, um, you know, if I imagine um, a child that whose father is on the uh, or on the uh, liver transplant list, or if you're a child with, uh, you know, nephrotic syndrome, nephrotic syndrome, and to not have a kidney emoji, I just fundamentally think that's uh, about representation and, and inclusion, right? That we should have that uh, ability represented among these anatomical emoji because these are. Uh, one, universal, everyone has these organs, right? Um, and two, if the emoji exists, more people know what they look like uh, and become more and more usable and accessible, right? Um, there's actually an amazing, amazing movie trailer about this around the creation of the hijab emoji. This was a years long fight. Um, at one point, there were four mailbox emoji, right? One mailbox to go up with a little flag up, down, left, right. Uh, but there were not, uh, there was not a, a person wearing a hijab to represent the 500 million Muslims across the world. And that to me is fundamentally unfair. And we were doing basically the same thing in medicine where we, um, you know, I am pushing for basically with a, a, a group of other physicians, uh, the creation of the kidney emoji, the stomach emoji, uh, the intestine emoji, spine, EKG, and actually one of the most important ones, a white blood cell emoji, especially in the context of the recent pandemic. Absolutely. I can totally see how this can be applied in many different situations, especially patient education. Um, and that's awesome. I saw that you retweeted earlier today, someone talking about the need for a kidney emoji. And it reminded me that um, during my nephrology blocks, I'd always use like a potato as a, a close alternative. <laughs> right. But I would love to see like an anatomic version sometime soon. That, that'd be great. 
Exactly. And a quick plug on this. Um, anyone who's listening should go to medicalemoji.org uh, where you can participate in the campaign. What we're doing is we're getting letters from societies uh, because the people who create these emoji are actually, it's a consensus setting organization, right? So they listen to society consensus. So when, um, you know, the AGA, American Gastroenterological Association, puts out a letter that says, there should be a stomach and intestine and liver emoji. They listen. When the ASLD uh, for the liver puts out this formal letter that says this liver sh uh, should exist, uh, that actually really moves the needle on the creation of these emoji. So that's what we're doing for every single one of these. So if you're uh, you know, passionate about um, you know, the spine, we would love to have more people to help reach out to uh, ANS and other uh, societies, right, to help create basically um, uh, more endorsement letters and more awareness for the need for, for example, the spine emoji or the white blood cell emoji. Awesome. Um, and as we're starting to wrap up, as a physician, how do you see the future of health IT in the next 10 to 5 years um, when, you know, Chris and I start practicing? Yeah. Um, so I would say this. Um, you know, there is right now seen as this divide of health IT and medicine, right? That there's somehow different things, right? And, but I'll give an example of this. At one point, the stethoscope was seen as this very fancy new tool and this technological uh, tool called a stethoscope and where you would have to use a tool to listen to someone's heart and lungs. And that was a fancy tech at the time, right? Because if you look at the history back then, people, uh, physicians were putting the ear directly on the patients. And it, it, this new stethoscope was seen as some sort of divide or um, a tool that would take you away from patients. But now fundamentally, it is one of the most representative tools for medicine, right? And I think it's a very similar to what we're seeing in um, uh, other technological tools that they're not different than how we're practicing, right? That they're just tools for the practice of medicine. And what we're trying to do at the end of the day is to take care of a patient in front of us. And tools make it easier, more accessible, and actually make us more capable of taking care of patients. And so what I would really uh, emphasize to kind of all the future med students is that that divide is really uh, um, uh, starting to close, where we think about technology and health IT as a fundamental part of medicine. And that's what I would really push that as, is really what we're trying to do is just take care of patients. Great. And um, finally, do you have any channels where people can connect with you or follow your work? Yeah, uh, Twitter. Uh, so um, especially for the med students that are listening, you know, I, I we do a lot of research. Um, it's all remote. Um, anyone can connect with us. We have a lot of different projects at any one time, whether that's in the opioid use disorder space, in the emoji space, in the patient reported outcome space, in the remote workspace. But ultimately, um, regardless of who it might be, follow me on Twitter. It's uh, Shuhan He MD um, and Twitter. But certainly, I think Twitter, um, especially medicine Twitter, uh, Med Twitter is one of the most active communities, and I, it's something I, I love and embrace, and something that has really grown, especially in the COVID pandemic, um, for the representation of medicine in, in just kind of large society, right? Uh, so certainly reach out to me on Twitter. Great. Well, everyone, that's all for today. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your time today, Dr. He. This has been Making the Rounds, a podcast by the American Medical Association. You can subscribe to Making the Rounds and other great AMA podcasts wherever you listen to yours. Or you can visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening. <laughs>